1: I have you loud and clear. Hello,
2: hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or big time,
3: brain, life, the universe.
2: This week on The Naked Scientists, your science questions are going under the microscope, including does telepathy exist and what does the science say about it? Can plants get cancer? And has the universe been through multiple big bangs in its history? Stay tuned to find out. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. Hello, I'm Chris Smith and with me this week to answer your questions are Dan Jones, he's from the British Antarctic Survey and he'll be discussing climate change. Howard Griffiths is a plant scientist from the University of Cambridge who's trying to solve world hunger by making wheat grow more efficiently. Kate Stores, she's a neuroscientist and also a UK FameLab finalist. She can tell you why you sometimes see stars. And talking of seeing stars, Jerry Gilmore is a cosmologist at the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge. First up, Kate, here's one for you because Mpho wants to know if women have better memories than men. He says he can't understand why his wife always appears to remember
3: more than he does. I love how much uh, personal bitterness there is in this question. Uh, It's certainly something that... uh People uh, believe, a a recent study found that about 70% of people believe that women have slightly better memories than men, if you just survey popular opinion. Uh, There is a fair bit of science on it with very mixed results.
2: Usually it relates to how often you put the rubbish out, that kind of thing. (laughs)
3: It certainly does depend what you what it is you're trying to remember. Uh, it's one of those situations where you want to turn to meta-analyses, big uh, gatherings of many studies to try and make sense of the conflicting results. Uh, one recent meta-analysis of 123 studies that had looked at Verbal memory, sort of memory for for sentences and words, uh, memory for spatial locations of objects and memory for faces, found that about 60% of these studies had found slightly better performance in women and most of the remainder found no gender difference. So there does seem to be a bit of evidence that statistically women might have slightly better memories, but like all gender differences, it's a very small effect. And uh, so this individual man, his wife, hard to be informed by the very messy science.
2: If there is a difference, then it must have some kind of evolutionary reason for being there. So what might be the reason it's there if it is?
3: No, absolutely not. It could have a totally cultural reason. Uh, so, for example, there's a, a study that found that women have better memories for faces while men have better memory for cars. And presumably the explanation for that is just that men tend to be more interested in cars and have been more prior knowledge within which to slot a new car. So it can be totally societal and cultural. But
2: at the same time, can you not argue that that, that there is a genetic element to to men being more interested or boys being more interested in certain things than girls? I I have a son and a daughter and my son, um, I thought we'd made a breakthrough the other day because he said he was building something with some Lego and it was a tower. And I thought, well, that's good because it's not a weapon because everything else is a weapon. Then I said, what's the tower for? And he said, it's for my gun. (laughs) Uh, Whereas my daughter just makes houses and draws pictures. (laughs)
3: There almost certainly are some uh, real genetically driven cognitive differences between men and women, even uh, infant macaque monkeys, the female infants, there's some evidence that they prefer very... um, uh, more delicate games, more kind of fine motor skill kind of games, while the boys in, enjoy kind of gross motor skills, mashing rocks on the ground kind of games.
2: So there you go. And Po, your wife might have a better memory than you, but it could just be cultural. Interesting stuff. Thank you very much, Kate. Now, Ria has sent this one in.
4: I have a question for you. Can plants get cancer?
2: Now, we know about cancer in humans, obviously, and and also animals. Anyone who's had a pet that's succumbed to cancer knows that that can happen. But what about plants? Howard,
5: you're a plant scientist. What do you think? Well, that's a very interesting question. And, And intriguingly, we think that some of the... Regulatory elements—the things that trigger cancers in animal systems—well, those processes were first discovered in plants. Actually, what but, do you mean by regulatory systems? Well, little genes that get produced, small RNAs that come out and edit gene expression. They—they they actually control whether genes get turned on or off, or and, and or whether that protein gets made, and that's what causes these cells to start growing uncontrollably
2: in humans and animals when you have a cancer you have as you say uncontrolled cell growth this is a genetic problem and one of the characteristics of cancers is that the cells spread around the body so can you get a similar phenomenon
5: in plants well, most of the types of cancerous growth that we see in plants are rather more localised. Often there's sorts of things that you might see as a, what used to be known as a robin's pin cushion or even a, a, the witch's broom that you see on birch, and that's often caused by a, bag, a bacterial infection. And what does the bacterial infection do? It triggers cells to uncontrollably grow. It changes their hormone balance, and because of that you then get this, this little outgrowth.
2: So you can get something that is a bit like cancer, but it's not the same sort of systemic problem that you get in a person. Exactly. But a lot of the genetic changes are common to both plants and people.
5: Yes, indeed. And in fact, the, the bacterial system, that, uh, that's how we actually used to transfer genetic material from plant to plant with the, the bacteriums called agrobacterium.
2: Thank you, Howard. Now, Jerry, here's a question we've got from our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash the naked scientist. Munyaradzi wants to know, if the Sun were to suddenly disappear, what would happen to all of the planets
1: and their orbits? The planets would keep moving exactly as they are instantaneously. Uh, people imagine that planets naturally move in circles, but they don't. They naturally, Everything naturally moves in a straight line. Uh, and a planet moves a little bit in a straight line and then it gets falls a little bit towards the sun and it moves a little bit more and falls and a little And that's bit.
2: gravity tugging <clears throat> it inwards.
1: It, that's right. It's falling the whole time, but it's also moving in a straight line the whole time. So if the gravity were simply to stop the planets would just continue in in the straight line that they're currently moving in. That's the tangent, as we call it, to their present orbit. And so they would just carry on moving away. The sort of underlying presumption here is when all this happens is kind of interesting, because people imagine that there is some sort of an absolute underlying time, a Newtonian time, and that therefore all the planets will head off instantaneously at the same time. But actually, time is different on the different planets. So it takes time for gravity and light and everything else to come from the sun to us. Oh, right. So
2: so gravity isn't there instantly. What you're saying is if the sun did evaporate all of a sudden in, in an instant, then we wouldn't know... For a certain amount of time,
1: exactly. if, uh, if the sun suddenly went dark, then the light would, the sky would stay bright for until as long as it took the light to get to us. So same you're saying gravity.
2: gravity propagates at the speed of light? Yeah, and
1: so does time. Actually, everything goes at the speed of light. Both time and gravity and light all travel at the speed of light. So, Why
2: do we think that gravity propagates at the speed of light
1: then? Uh, we know it does actually. It was measured earlier this year. With the gravitational wave <laughs> With study. the gravitational wave burst, yeah. I mean, and, how, and
2: so how did they measure that then?
1: Uh, there were two detectors separated by a finite distance and you could measure the time... The, the, the gravity the, the wave signal.
2: arrives at one and they know how far away it is to the
1: other yeah, one. Right, and then a few milliseconds later, the other one, which was a few thousand kilometers away, saw the other one. <clears throat> and that's fundamental to Einstein's general theory of relativity. Uh, it was a prediction from almost immediately after the theory was developed. And it was completely different than the way it works in Newtonian gravity, where there is this absolute time sitting there in the background that things just live in uh, whereas uh, we now know that that's not correct
2: so to summarize for the benefit of muniradzi who sent this question in were the sun or a star with some planets going around it suddenly to disappear its gravitational influence would be removed and the time it took before those planets ceased to feel
1: the gravity from
2: that star would be however long it takes light from that star to reach that planet
1: Absolutely. So if you're outside watching it, you would see the planets popping off in their straight-line orbits. Uh, but because everything is happening in the time it takes the signal to get to you, you'd see it all just vanishing off very nicely. It's only if you're on one of those planets you'd think it was different.
2: Jerry, thank you very much. Now, Dan, a um, question here for you from Howell.
1: I recently watched a YouTube video which put forward convincing evidence that there is no correlation between carbon dioxide levels and rising temperatures. They actually show graphs that say that over long periods of time, temperatures rise and then, 800 years later, CO2 levels rise. They also show evidence that states in the 1940s to 1970s, when CO2 levels rose significantly, temperatures actually dropped. Finally, they showed a direct correlation between temperature rises and sunspot
0: activity. How can climate change scientists refute these facts? Thank you.
2: Sorry to give you a host of quite hard questions there, Dan. So let's start with the, the first one then. What What's the evidence really that carbon dioxide, the gas that comes out of exhaust pipes and chimneys and so on, does cause climate change?
4: Whenever I think about climate change, uh, I don't usually start with the temperature trend. Like you're suggesting, I would start with carbon dioxide. Uh, we know that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas that... Uh, was measured in the mid-1800s and any spectroscopy lab in the world can see the the wavelengths of radiation that carbon dioxide likes to absorb and emit. And we know that it, it absorbs energy from the Earth's surface and then also emits energy back down to the Earth's surface. And by energy, you mean heat? Um, yeah. yeah, okay. For, for to yeah. make it simple. We're Let's, talking
2: about basically infrared energy, aren't we? Yeah, heat? infrared. Yeah, that's fine. So the, what you're saying um, is the more CO2 that there is because it can absorb more of that energy, that there's there's more opportunity for that energy to to be soaked up
4: if you put more co2 in the atmosphere you will get more energy down here at the surface right that's really that's really clear we've been adding about 30 billion tons of carbon dioxide per year and that accumulates in the ocean atmosphere and land and that's from fossil fuel burning the short story is that that energy has to go somewhere if you double carbon dioxide, that's energetically equivalent to putting a 4-watt light bulb on every square meter of Earth's surface and letting it run 365 days a year, 24-7. 4 watts might not sound like a lot, but the Earth is gigantic. So if you put one of these light bulbs on every square meter, uh, that ends up being energetically equivalent to about 40 nuclear explosions per second. Um, which is Okay, is, so yeah. the
2: the physics argument is that because there's more of something that can soak up the energy around, there should therefore be more opportunity to interrupt that energy before it goes off into space and the earth system should become warmer so that's what the physics says but what people are saying is that when you look at graphs and things like that there appears to be some disparity between what the carbon dioxide is doing what the temperature is doing what the climate current Mm -hmm. climate measurements and predictions are doing
4: how do climate scientists like you respond to those sorts of allegations right what the gentleman who asked the question was referring to was the surface temperature right the just land surface temperature Um, well not just land but the surface temperature And that quantity can be affected by how energy is exchanged between the atmosphere and the ocean and the cryosphere. So if that's the only number you're looking at, you will see some wiggles. It will rise, it will fall, and some of that is just due to exchanges of energy between the different parts of the climate system. An easier-to-read thermometer, I might suggest, would be something like ocean heat content. It uh, takes more energy to raise the, the temperature of the ocean by... Uh, you know one degree than it does the atmosphere because you can just put a lot more heat into the ocean it has a higher uh, heat capacity so if you look at the ocean heat content over the past several decades that has been increasing It, it looks steadier than the surface temperature which does have some of these increases and decreases. So is it fair to say that the general trend
2: is an upward one for both the surface temperature and also the sea temperature, that there are fewer wiggles in the sea than there are at the surface, which you would expect because the ocean is is a it takes a lot more energy to change the temperature of the ocean, so it's gonna be more sort of stable over time. And we would expect to see wiggles in the atmosphere because there are gonna be changes and sort of variations year on year anyway,
4: but the general trend is an upward one. That's right. So I wouldn't get too caught up in looking at this you know, one year or even a couple of years. I'd look at several decades, the past century or so dan from the british antarctic survey thank you very much
5: so no one has a better or worse set of genes but across the whole human population it's the diversity that allows us to survive disease best of all
3: in this month's naked genetics podcast we discover how a handful of genes govern your health immune system and even your love life plus we dig into the latest research on cancer genomes and our gene of the month has a spanish flavor Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics.
5: You're
2: listening to The Naked Scientist. Still to come, we see if we can help one of our listeners win an argument with his mum and we'll find out if there's any truth to telepathy. But first, Ruth has been in touch. She's been having an operation to have her gallbladder out and she wants to know what is your gallbladder and will she notice when it's gone? Well the gallbladder is a small bag which is attached to your bile duct or your biliary tree which comes off your liver so the gallbladder sits underneath the liver. The common reason why people have the gallbladder removed is because they develop gall stones and these produce a symptom called biliary colic. Classically people complain of a pain at the right upper part of their tummy after or around the time that they're eating a very fatty meal. Now, this is because the gallbladder stores bile. The liver makes bile and it secretes the bile into the biliary tree. The bile runs down the bile ducts, drains into the gallbladder, which opens up, relaxes and fills with this bile. And bile consists of bile salts and cholesterol and things called phospholipids. And these are chemicals which are stored in the gallbladder temporarily and then used when you eat a fatty meal to come out into the small intestine through your bile duct and mix with the fats and break them up or emulsify them into lots of small droplets that your digestive juices can more easily act on. But because the bile is full of these fatty materials, sometimes they can form stones, and these stones build up like gravel in the gallbladder, and they can block the neck of the gallbladder so that when it tries to contract and expel the bile, instead a stone gets stuck in the neck and it makes it very painful. And this is the biliary colic surgeons when a patient presents with these symptoms and they diagnose gallstone disease go in usually with cameras which are put in through one or two small holes in the abdomen and then they remove the gallbladder just using these telescopes it's called laparoscopic surgery it's very safe it's very effective at at relieving the symptoms and usually patients have absolutely no symptoms afterwards that their gallbladder has been removed. The uh, biliary tree has enough capacity to store enough bile so that as long as you don't overdo it on eating a fatty meal you shouldn't even notice that you've no longer got your gallbladder apart from not having the gallstones anymore. So I hope that gives you some reassurance Ruth and good luck. Now Howard, listener Mark wants to know why growing trees doesn't cause the ground underneath them to subside. It's
5: probably more likely that if you've got a tree adjacent to your house that it it might be your house that's subsiding somewhat Um, because if you've got a tree growing on a clay soil they can abstract water from it and that can sometimes in a dry summer make the clay shrink and cause subsidence so so maybe it's the other way around but to answer your question which is where do plants get their minerals from? Why don't plants, by taking out the minerals out of the soil, cause the soil to reduce? You have to remember that uh, plants are still 90 to 95% water, and the mineral content is perhaps only about a thousandth of the plant dry weight. It's it's When you burn a log, you you get ash out, which is very much lighter, isn't it? And that's the mineral content that's left after you've burnt that log. And so in actual fact, um, because of the, the, the relative uptake of carbon from the atmosphere which makes the plants grow they don't absorb very much from the soil and at the same time they're putting roots below ground which are building up the volume and the earthworms are busy replenishing the minerals from the the ground rock below so all in all you tend not to see soil decreasing around trees you actually see it increasing as they add more and more organic material year on year thank you howard now i'm looking
2: actually at two pictures they're both the same and what they show are two faces that appear to stare at each other with the noses pointing towards each other. Or, if I look away and look back again, I appear to see a rather nice-looking goblet or vase. Now, Cameron has sent in this question for you, Kate, which refers to this sort of illusion.
1: Why can I choose how I perceive some illusions but not others? For example, when I look at the face-vase illusion, I can voluntarily shift my focus and see either the vase or the face's. In contrast, when I look at the spinning dancer illusion, I perceive them spinning in only one direction and have to close my eyes or look away and then look back in order to change that direction. I can't do it voluntarily. Do these illusions occur in different parts of my brain? Is it to do with a static image versus a moving one? What's going
2: on? Thanks.
4: Kate.
3: Uh, so yes, they're certainly happening in different parts of your brain. Uh, that's not necessarily the explanation for why some are switchable and some are not, though. Uh, so just to give a bit of background on why some things have two interpretations, it's because they're uh, fundamentally ambiguous stimuli. There there are cues to two different interpretations, both within the image. So this face vase illusion that probably most people have seen, you can either see it as two black faces sitting on a white background or a white vase sitting on a black background. And we know that in our visual system, we have cells that respond to particular bits of the visual field, that respond to, uh, for example, a white surface on a black background or a black surface on a white background. So if I look at it and by chance the cells that like white things on black backgrounds are a little bit more active when I first glance at it, they have excitatory connections to other cells that have similar interpretations. So they're going to win and form this coalition that's kind of self-reinforcing and then that'll feed up to higher layers and that'll be interpreted as a vase.
2: And does it have the converse where... When those ones get a bit more excited, as well as helping to excite other cells, they also turn off the cells that want to see, instead of a vase, they want to see a face.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Spot on. Uh, because seeing it as a white thing on a black background is incompatible with seeing it as black on white. And so you have inhibitory connections between the cells that have those two different interpretations.
4: Dan, Um, the first time I saw that spinning dancer illusion where it's an animation of a dancer spinning and it appears to be spinning in one direction and then suddenly For me, anyway, suddenly she switched directions, and I felt really nauseated when that Mm. happened. Is that common? Yes, there's something
3: very unnerving about your interpretation that had felt so solid and and real, suddenly completely switching.
4: Yeah, your brain doesn't like
1: that, I guess.
3: No.
4: (laughs) The the
1: other one is that. Oh, Jerry, go. Yeah, it's an interesting um, cosmological consequence of this as well, is that um, for pretty well all northern hemisphere cultures, we talk about the Milky Way. So there's this white on dark sky <laughs> and yet for the uh, aboriginal people of southeastern Australia they talk about dark on white so it's the, the dark bands through the uh, middle of the Milky Way which form a gigantic emu shape and they really do actually and, and they, don't, don't they use that to know when it's in a certain position in the sky to know when to go and get the eggs absolutely Yes, yes, it's cultural and uh, and it works very well. But it's just a nice inversion of black and white. Which one you decide is the signal and which one you decide is the background is clearly just a cultural presumption.
2: Okay, um, one of the things which I've noticed when you look at that hollow mask illusion is that it is impossible to force yourself, even though you know. And by this, I'm talking about that if you see a mask spinning round and you're seeing it from the front and then it turns around and you see it from the back at some point you know you're looking into the inside of the mask but you can't help yourself but to see it coming out at you and and I know with this illusion where we've got this vase or the faces I can cause myself to flick between the two but with the hollow mask one I just can't overcome that
3: yes your visual system takes a lot of prior knowledge into account and our experience with faces is that they're always convex objects and they're such familiar patterns we just compulsarily see them as being convex objects even if we know at some kind of intellectual level that they're not.
2: So basically it's your brain saying I know what the world's all about and therefore I'm going to force you to see it one way regardless of whether that actually is the reality.
3: Yes. So to answer Cameron's question, I think the the difficulty of voluntarily switching depends on how strongly these coalitions that represent the different interpretations are suppressing one another. For some stimuli, the the cues in the image seem to be such that there isn't very strong evidence for either interpretation and you can sort of tilt them with eye movements or attention, whereas others like the spinning dancer, they're just uh, totally uh, compelling and antithetical interpretations. Some people have
2: found that individuals who have schizophrenia can't see these illusions. They, they don't experience them.
3: Yes, the hollow mask illusion in particular. Uh, there's evidence that schizophrenics see it veridically as being a hollow Why? mask. We don't know. Possibly uh, something to do with a, a failure to incorporate prior knowledge as effectively into your interpretation of the world as uh, healthy brains do.
2: Thank you very much, Kate. Gerry, Lynn's written in with a question and she says, does lightning sour milk? My uncle was a dairyman. He said it could, but I'm a scientist. I just don't see how it can happen. But we've had a series of storms go through and half a gallon of milk has soured and we never have milk
1: sour normally. So it's making me wonder, what do you think? It's really interesting, this one. Uh, It's a a classical old wives tale in the sense of old wives being uh, established wisdom. And it goes back hundreds of years, became a major research endeavor in the late 1800s with hundreds of scientific papers written on the subject. And it turns out it's true, Uh, or at least it was true. The, the reason is that um, lightning is a, it's a classic case of associating the dramatic variable uh, with the answer when, in fact, there's some much more prosaic fundamental thing going on. And the fundamental prosaic thing going on is first that in lightning storms, you tend to have rain and rain brings down germs and bugs and spreads them out of the atmosphere. Uh, and secondly, it happens in warm weather. And so in the days before pasteurization and refrigeration, uh, dairying was a marginal business and you, you took your life in your hands by eating milk. Uh, and in fact, it did go sour. It was a, a well-established phenomenon over, over millennia. Uh, all that changed about the year 1900 with pasteurization and refrigeration. <clears throat> and so it should no longer happen if uh, reasonable sanitation applies. Jerry, thank you very much. Now, Dan, we've heard from George in Australia and he wants to know
2: if increased greenhouse gas which you were mentioning earlier could lead to some kind of compensatory mechanism by the earth that naturally kicks in and decreases the global warming effect a sort of homeostasis in the same way as if your blood sugar goes up or your body temperature goes up
4: various mechanisms kick in to rein those changes in and and bring them back down again at the moment um, we do have uh, some amount of the carbon dioxide that we put into the atmosphere does go into the ocean it's a roughly 20% of the amount that we emit is absorbed by the ocean and the other, uh, 30% roughly goes into the land and the other about less than half, uh, stays in the atmosphere. The term that you'll see thrown around is, uh, sinks of carbon dioxide. There's the oceanic sink and the land-based sink. So the question is, can these sinks continue to do that job into the future? And, uh, it's a big area of research right now, and there's it, it, there's a ton of people working on it and a lot of effort going into this. So it's a really interesting question. I'd be careful about making too many summary statements just at the moment, but yeah, there's, there's definitely, it's a good question, and there's a lot of work going into this.
2: We have evidence that this has happened in the past, haven't we? Because, for instance, we know that the Himalayas were formed when India, which was down near Antarctica, has migrated up across the Indian Ocean, and it's pushed up seafloor in front of it, right. made the Himalayas that way, expose lots of minerals from the floor of the uh, seafloor and that's pulled carbon dioxide down out of the
4: atmosphere and it triggered an ice age didn't it right so these are very long term sinks of carbon dioxide this is a geological one these long term sinks take you know many thousands 10,000 years that kind of time scale to actually bring the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere down or or back up depending on which way that feedback mechanism is operating so they're much much slower concern is that right now um, we're putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere much faster than any of these natural sinks can really get it back down very quickly. For example, that over the past million years, we've seen four to seven degree Celsius temperature variations. And these temperature variations are associated with these long uh, sinks that you're referring to. But usually that temperature change of four to seven degrees, those usually happen over about 5,000 year periods of time. Uh, Whereas right now, In the past century, we've seen about a 0.7 degrees Celsius rise, which is 10 times faster than the ice age recovery warming. So it's uh, saying
2: that although we're seeing small changes in temperature, they're occurring over shorter timescales. So actually the rate of change is much greater than than we've seen in long timescales before.
4: That's the concern, yeah. yeah.
2: Dan, thanks very much. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me Chris Smith and this week our panel of experts are answering the questions that you have been sending in. Uh, with me are neuroscientist Kate Stores. We also have astronomer and space scientist Jerry Gilmore. Oceanographer and climate change expert Dan Jones is here in the studio, as is plant scientist Howard Griffiths. And uh, Howard, MLG from the USA wants to know, what's the maximum human population? Seeing as you've been looking into how to feed a growing population, that's the basis of your research, is there a maximum we need to have in mind when we factor in the space and the infrastructure?
5: Well, thank you, Chris. That's a very nice question. And it's going to be a difficult one to answer, both from an ethical and a practical perspective. I mean, the background to this is that we expect that the global population is going to increase by two to three billion over the next 50 to 100 years or so. Uh, but we then predict that it will level out to some extent. And as the questioner hints in their original question, we also expect that we're going to see populations increasingly becoming urbanized, part of city dwellers. And they're also going to want to have higher aspirations to lifestyles. They want to increase their meat consumption. And that. Uh, is also in, not a very effective use of resources. And then we've got climate change that we've been hearing about. So we're going to in, get increased uh, climatic extremes, floods and drought. So the question is, can we sustain uh, the, the population that we are predicted to see? Which is what? We're currently heading towards 10 billion people. There's okay, what, So we're seven? about 6 to 7 billion at the moment, mm-hmm. and we're likely to head towards 10 by the end of this century. People
2: say we're consuming resources at the moment at the rate of two planet Earths, not one. So if you increase our numbers by another 30 to 50 percent, which is what that number you've just suggested is, that means we'll be up to three planet Earths per person equivalent per year. That That's you could, totally unsustainable, surely.
5: It, it is dangerously unsustainable and that increases the threat upon our natural vegetation because there will be a demand to try to convert more land area into Agriculturally productive land so it's a real threat all the way around but then you can come back and us and say well why don't we control the amount of food we waste up to 40 or, or 40 or 60 percent of the food that is bought in america and in europe is just thrown away it's not consumed why don't we learn to redistribute that food better And isn't uh, that a
2: short term solution, though, how? Because if I feed more people, I'll get more people and we'll end up at the natural point where we've still got a population crisis, albeit with a higher number of people ultimately anyway.
5: Well, coupled with this increasing population, let's we expect that there will be increased education. There's going to be an increased awareness that you no longer need to have a huge family to support you in your dotage, as it were, and that actually small families are sustainable and they are realistic. So what we actually need to focus on is education, and particularly empowerment of women. This is really important on a world scale to try to get a cultural understanding that a huge family is not necessary.
2: You're a plant scientist, so I suspect you would love to see a solution to this problem lying with plants. But there have been some people who've suggested that, in fact, if the entire world went vegetarian this would immediately cut our carbon dioxide output by quite a significant amount. Because if you look at the average Westerner, we probably eat our own body weight in meat each year. And if you look at the rearing cycle for meat, we need about three years' worth of supply. So therefore there's probably three times as much weight of animals as there is humans So you could immediately translate that into a very dramatic reduction
5: if we all just stopped eating meat. But would we be healthy? Yes, indeed. One sort of small step we might care to take is to go vegetarian one or two days a week. And this would start us to change us, to move towards a more sustainable diet. It would be better for our health as well. The other possibility is in
2: vitro meat, isn't it? We've had in the last couple of years, we've had the in vitro burger being made where people grow cells in a dish and make muscle artificially. Apparently it doesn't taste too good, though. It looks pretty horrendous as well. Okay, maybe I'll give that one a miss then. Now, Kate, this is the one that uh, many people knew was coming. Um, Alan McNamara wants to know, is there actually any evidence for telepathy? We've all heard that uh, and had that spooky feeling where people say they thought of the same thing at the same time, but is this just coincidence or is there actually anything in it?
3: Uh, Well, the the literal answer, is there any evidence for telepathy, is yes, there's a literature going back to the late 1800s, uh, some studies of which claim to have found some evidence for telepathy. Uh, The massive caveat on that is that if you consider this huge body of work as a whole, it's not compelling evidence for something as remarkable, as extraordinary as telepathy.
2: What about the, the whole, just the statistics of it, that if you do enough studies, then just by chance, a few are going to throw up an apparent association and you're going to say oh look here's the evidence and of course there's there's this bias in people publishing positive results so they're going to say uh oh look i've got i've got evidence for telepathy and they'll publish that whereas if they didn't find anything they wouldn't publish it so therefore if you look in the literature you're going to find more reports suggesting there's an effect than not.
3: Exactly. This is the main problem. So the uh, threshold we use, at least in psychology, for whether an effect was found or not is whether if you assume that the effect was not there, you would have got a result as extreme or more extreme than this, less than one in 20 times. So is, is are my data uh, so surprising that I would only have found them one in 20 times if the effect wasn't there? But that means if there's no telepathy, if you run 20, telepathy testing studies one of them will find an effect and if you keep running them for hundreds of years you will amass a very large number of studies that find positive evidence for telepathy and the uh, combined with the second factor the file draw problem we call it in science if you find a a boring result uh, if you fail to sort of to find something interesting like telepathy you sort of have a tendency with the best will in the world to kind of stick it in your uh, lower file drawer and not quite get around to writing it up or the journals are not quite so interested in publishing it. So you end up with a very biased representation.
2: So have you looked at the, this literature? Is, is there any reason why it might be plausible or is there any, any evidence for, or a mechanism put forward by people for how two brains that are not connected might be able to exchange information?
3: There's no mechanism within modern neuroscience that could that could uh, account for it. No. What
2: about in <laughs> physics, Jerry? Is there is there a possibly a quantum entanglement possibility between two brains that <laughs> this, uh, could lead to a... This, To be honest, sounds a great deal more like astrology than uh, than physics. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a no from both of you. Jerry, this is a question from Takari who uh, wants to get back in the good books with his mum. He left a couple of cans of cola in his bag after a party. Two days later, they were still cold. But when his mum saw the cans she assumed he must have taken them out of the fridge that morning and wasn't very pleased now to prove he wasn't lying she suggested he could leave one can in the car overnight and then test the results and the next morning that can was warm and he got grounded so he wants to know if there's any way to show that he was actually telling the truth that he had these cans of cola and they did manage to stay really cold uh, despite that extended time difference so what's the sort of physics here what can he what can he say to get himself off the hook
1: Well, the simple answer is that a can of cola, which you shouldn't be drinking for health reasons, uh, will come to equilibrium uh, in temperature with the environment very quickly indeed because it's very thin metal and it's just basically water and sugar on the inside. So it'll, it'll quickly come to the ambient temperature. But that's irrelevant. The point is, why does something feel cold? And something feels cold because it conducts heat away from your skin efficiently. And so, in a coolish sort of day, if you touch a, a thin metal sheet, it will feel cold to you. The second part of this was, well, there was moisture on it, condensation, therefore it's cold. Now, that's condensation is nothing to do with temperature, it's to do with humidity. Uh, and so, if there was a coolish, Damp day, the cans could well feel damp and cold, uh, and they would—that would be their just natural temperature. Then there's the interesting follow-up of the car. Now cars are interesting because cars uh overcool at night time. And that's because they have windows which radiate away more heat than is natural. So cars get colder than their surroundings, which is why there's always ice on your car uh and not on the grass. But then they heat up more quickly than their surroundings as well. And so if you went to check your can uh, early in the morning in the car it would have been colder and it would probably have frost on it and he would have uh, won the the discussion but doing it a little bit later uh, means you lose Uh, and so the answer the real answer is a by not having the cola for However long one was grounded and not having the other prohibitions, his health and uh, general education has improved enormously. Um, And secondly, there's three interesting bits of physics in that question, which I uh, hope have um, uh, proved more interesting than than the contents of the can.
2: Jerry, thank you very much. Now, Dan, uh, Kalen in Canada is wondering, could we store... Rising seawater where we once put oil. Now, the the point about this is, with climate change and so on, we're expecting global temperatures to rise and sea levels to rise because of melting ice and also the thermal expansion of water. So, could we offset all that seawater that's going to inundate all the low-lying countries like Britain? And could we
4: just shove it in the hole in the ground that we've made by taking all the oil out? I like this question. Um, I did it, some really simple back-of-the-envelope type calculations before the show. So everyone, please feel free to go do your own and check this. Um, so we produce about 90 million barrels of oil per day. Uh, and the volume of that, uh, we could fill the O2 stadium 1,300 times per year. So fill it up and drain it about 1,300 times with the amount of oil that we produce. But um, looking at sea level rise, and although the reported sea level rise Is just a rate of three point two millimeters per year. At the moment, uh, there's a lot of ocean out there. There's a huge surface area. So if you look at just that three point two millimeters over the entire surface area of the ocean, it's about a thousand times more than the amount of oil that we produce. So it looks like no, there's not nearly enough room by about a factor of a thousand, unfortunately. And I don't, I don't even know if you could do this, if you could put the seawater in those places, would it even stay there? The rock might be a bit more...
2: Uh, when we extract oil from the ground, these rocks are porous rocks. They're like a yeah. sponge with oil in them. Yeah. And the way the oil is, is removed is by displacing it out, yeah. for the most part, with water already, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So one could argue that many of these oil wells are already yeah. saturated with water by the time you've recovered the oil. So it's a bit of a non-starter yeah. by the look of things. But thank you for those fantastic numbers. Now, Kate, you actually have been a finalist in FameLab, and for people who are not acquainted with FameLab, this is an international competition where scientists are given three minutes to deliver some kind of speech or talk all about a sector of science that they work on or are interested in. So, Kate, you have three minutes, and you're going to tell us about your topic. Off you go.
3: So have you ever been uh, looking up at the sky on a sunny day and noticed little specks drifting and wiggling and zipping around in your vision? Many times. Good. Well, some of them are boring things. Some of them are just bits of gunk floating across your eye. But others are something very special and strange. uh, And you can only see them against a bright blue light like the sky. So next time it's sunny, look up and uh, see if you can see tiny bright white dots. And when you first spot them, they look like uh, sparks or pinpricks. And then as you watch for longer, you realise that each spark lives for about a second. And then it wiggles along a little curvy path in that second and then pops out of existence. Each one of those dots is an individual white blood cell moving through the veins in your eye see at the at the back of your eye you've got this tangled net of blood vessels that get infinitesimally narrow. And the majority of the things going down them are red blood cells, which are also tiny, so they're fine. but uh, every once in a while, a white blood cell comes along, which is twice as big and it gets stuck for a moment in the narrow tubes and it has to squish and wiggle its way free. So if you happen to be looking at a bright light at that moment, you can see it getting stuck because the white blood cell is almost transparent. It lets the tiniest pinprick of light shine through. And they're called blue sky sprites, if you like whimsical names for things, or uh, Shearer's Bluefield Entoptic Phenomenon, if you don't. On top of the amazing fact that it means we can watch individual cells moving through our bodies. Blue sky sky sprites have a couple of uh, really surprising implications. So first, they show us that our eyes are back to front. That explanation I gave about white blood cells letting the light shine through only makes sense if the bit that detected the light was behind all the blood vessels. But from a design perspective, that seems crazy. It would mean that the light had to pass through this whole tangle to get to the bit that mattered. But crazy as it is, that's how the eye works, or at least how it works in mammals and birds. If you were an octopus, your eye would be the right way around and you wouldn't see blue sky sprites. The other surprising implication is that we can watch our own immune systems fighting disease. So about 10 years ago, some scientists gave people a very small dose of E. coli bacteria, just enough to trigger an immune response, which means their bodies generated more white blood cells. And those people could see about 50% more blue sky sprites while they were fighting the E. coli than they could before. For me, though, I love them because they're a reminder that science is not uh, essentially high tech or complicated at its heart. Science is about looking closely at things and even our most frivolous and personal experiences gazing up at the sky on a sunny day can, if you really pay attention to them, turn out to contain whole worlds of surprising new knowledge.
2: Kate, why is this more apparent when you look at a nice bright blue sky than any other background?
3: Uh, Because your red blood cells are literally uh, red, which means they um, absorb the blue light. So if you look at a blue light, there's the largest spectral difference between what's being absorbed by the red blood cells and what's being let through by the white blood cells.
2: So it just makes the white ones much more apparent when you look at something that's a blue background.
3: Absolutely, yeah.
2: Brilliant. Thank you very much. And I can understand and now see why you did so well in FameLab. Thanks, Kate.
4: grayer here from Naked Astronomy. I wanted to say hey and tell you about my new podcast. It's an awesome audio adventure into the big black cosmos that we inhabit. What's out there? How did it all begin? And what will happen in the end? Presented and produced by yours truly. You can find it on most podcasting platforms. Just search Naked Astronomy
2: you're listening to the naked scientists with me chris smith and my panel of skilled scientists who are answering your science questions now jerry bob wilson wants to know could the big bang be part of a repeating cycle of expansion and retraction in other words has the universe been through more than one big bang in the past
1: that's a pretty big question just to sneak in like that chris (laughs) it uh the answer is uh in principle yes uh, We have a a model, a description of cosmology and the origin of the universe in which the universe started as an infinitesimally tiny uh, volume with a very, very large amount of energy in it indeed. Uh, This energy essentially from nothing uh, expanded very rapidly, uh, much, much faster than the speed of light for a longish time by its standards about a millionth of a second by our standards Uh, and so the and that led to a universe that was incredibly stretched out and incredibly huge and a teeny teeny part of that uh, original universe is what we see as our universe today now that picture which when you plug it into einstein's general relativity provides an excellent description of all our observations but it makes no sense at all you have to make up all sorts of assumptions. Uh, You have to guess why numbers are the way they are. So it may be right, but it's clearly not a complete description. We don't have a quantum gravity description of what really happened in those early days. And so people are investigating all sorts of uh, possibilities, even though there's no evidence, direct evidence as yet for it. One indeed is this, which in the jargon is called epkirotic, uh, which is this idea that the universe is, is a repeating cyclic event. And so we are on generation X uh, of the universe. So I say there's no evidence for this. But the current evidence is that the universe is, in fact, uh, accelerating its expansion and will accelerate into a, a universe of essentially nothing. So we've gone from intense concentration to intense, cold, permanent death, which is pretty dreary. So it's, uh, up, so it's blowing up all the time. It's getting bigger, but the older it gets, the faster it grows. It's going faster rather than slower, yes. The weight of the universe ought to be slowing it down, but there are, something else is out there uh, speeding it up. Uh, we don't know what this other stuff is. It's probably something similar to what happened in the very first instant of the universe. It's called inflation for obvious reasons. Uh, that inflation stopped. Maybe this one will. Maybe it'll turn around. Current l- lack of knowledge is that no, that won't happen and bad luck. This is just all we've got. But uh, it's quite possible that in the far future, the universe will be a much, much more interesting place than we think it will be today.
2: Well, there's something to look forward to at least. Jerry, thank you very much. Howard, here's one for you.
0: Hello, Naked Scientists. This is Jonas from Geneva. Now, my question is regarding trees
5: and leaves. In colder climates, many leaf trees drop their leaves during the autumn. Now, is there an average percentage amount of biomass that a tree drops through their leaves in the season? And related to that, some trees do not drop their leaves even in colder climates. So why is it evolutionary beneficial for some trees to drop their leaves? Okay, well, thank you very much. That's a great question, because it's all basically a question of economics. To answer your first question, a a tree 10 metres high might have uh, 30 30 kilograms of leaves that it might shed. Uh, Bigger trees will have more, up to 100 kilograms of leaves. But leaves are costly to make. So we heard earlier about the nutrients that you need to take out from the soil to build together with the carbon to make the structural material. And they're also a risk in cold, snowy habitats because they they inter- interact with wind and they cause trees to blow over and they might cause water to be t- lost from the tree at a time when it's the ground is frozen. So deciduous broadleaf trees, uh, which we might recognise as beech and oak and lime, they leaf out late in the year, bef- at the end when the, the risk of frosts have gone. And provided they've got plenty of water and nutrients, they can flush a new set of leaves Every year, and that allows them to grow faster than the evergreen conifers. So they outcompete the conifers uh, when they grow side by side. Then, what about conifers? Well, conifers tend to grow better in cold, waterlogged soils where nutrients are very infrequent. So they hold on to their leaves for two to three years. And so the economics of building a leaf are make more sense for a conifer to hold on to its leaves and then they have a structure and they shed snow and so on in, in the cold winter and they're very tolerant of freezing and so on. But they're slower growing and so that's the trade-off. And so conifers are generally restricted high up mountains or up into the northern latitudes. When they're in your living room at Christmas, of course,
2: they, they do drop needles, as we all know. Howard, thank you very much. Now, Kate, Donald is wondering, could selectively breeding gorillas or similar mean that they could come up with a, some kind of sophisticated language?
3: I love this question. If Donald would like to get in touch, I think we should start writing the grant application. Uh, certainly, people have taught great apes how to use sign language and how to use kind of pictographic keyboards. Uh, they they can communicate quite well in simple sentences, but don't seem to have ever grasped grammar and syntax or had that kind of vocabulary explosion that human children do. So there's there's clearly something missing in the in the non-human primate brain at the moment. Uh, Donald said in his question, "If you if you gave uh, fifty thousand years uh, to select to do the selectively breeding program." Which is a very, very long time. Uh, the the um, it takes long, a...
2: <laughs> longer than the grant you would probably get funded for. That's true.
3: That's about five thousand gorilla generations. If you go back five thousand human generations, you go back about a hundred thousand years. We're mostly in Africa. We're still interbreeding with Neanderthals. It's before the great kind of cultural explosion. Uh, a lot can happen in fifty thousand years. I with selective breeding. I'm going to go with yes. <laughs>
2: Thank you, Kate. Now, Jerry, question for you. Loiso is wondering if he could speed up Mars missions with his theory. He'd like to know if you could send rockets mounted on rockets so that in space one rocket could launch off the other and that would give the combined speed of two rockets. Would this actually work, he says?
1: Uh, yes, is the answer. In fact, that's the way we do it. <laughs> the, um, it's not this combined speed. It's the combined acceleration that matters, but eventually you get to this combined speed. Uh, so, for example, when you're launching a big rocket, you strap four or five small ones on. They're called boosters, and then you toss that up, and then you have a second stage, a third stage, and so on. Uh, so this, the cumulative speed is built up by adding rocket engines uh, <clears throat> at various stages through the flight. Uh, once you run out of rockets, there's another cute thing you can do, which is bounce off a planet or the moon. Uh, and You don't actually physically hit it, but if you go really close, then you can uh, go down close to a planet and then zoom away. This and is what they call a slingshot, isn't it? It's a slingshot, yeah, a gravitational slingshot. How They're does trying- it work? Uh, <clears throat> well… If you time your your motion of the spacecraft appropriately, you can take a little bit of the energy out of the orbit of the planet. So you slow the planet down slightly and speed yourself up. So total energy is conserved, but you transfer energy from the planet into the spacecraft. But surely if you're being attracted by something, if you're zooming towards
2: a big planet, its gravity is accelerating you towards it. When you've gone around the other side of it and you have to get away again, isn't it just going to pull you back as hard as it pulled you in in the first place so there's no net gain?
1: Uh, it's all a question of uh, relative motion and um, <clears throat> the fact that things are spinning as well helps to confuse things a lot as well. But no, the, the not, nothing, if, if there were just – you imagined a stationary planet and you went down and came back up again, then yes, you gain nothing. You just uh, go – you would in fact go in what is called an orbit around that planet, round and round and round. And as the moon goes around the earth, nothing would ever change. But if you go – very close to the planet and remembering that the planet is moving compared to where you want to be so in a different reference frame then you can pick up some of the energy and so that's how you get to an outer planet like jupiter or saturn you do it by heading into into venus and then you zoom around venus at high speed and you get flicked out and that's the only way So you
2: let venus pull you in but by the time you get to venus venus has moved off somewhere else so you've just got the the gravitational acceleration as Venus was temporarily there and then then you're on your way to somewhere else and you do that a few times with a few planets, you can get a lot more speed than you would otherwise have with a rocket.
1: That's absolutely correct, yes. It's just a question of precision timing. And uh, And it takes a
2: long time, I presume, as well, because you've got to keep zipping backwards and forwards on the solar system doing journeys of billions of kilometres instead of just going A to B.
1: Yeah, a typical mission to the outer planets actually will bounce off Venus and the Earth and Mars two or three times before it heads on out. And so it's, it's bouncing around the inner solar system, picking up speed and picking up speed until eventually it gets flicked out in the slingshot. And it's still faster to do that in terms of of
2: time spent than to just have a really, really, really big rocket and accelerate yourself to a really,
1: really, really high speed? No. no. in terms of time spent, if you were rich and you had a really big rocket, that's the way to do it. But uh, it's just wasting money to do that when you've got, uh, got Isaac Newton can do it for you.
2: And also, is there not more, I suppose, inherent risk? Because if you've got a really, really, really big rocket, it's going to be a really, really, really big explosion if anything goes wrong. And also you might as well take the lower risk
1: pathway if you bounce off a planet, like you're saying. Yeah, it, it works. You know, people people have been doing it for a long time. So it's, uh, we know how to do it. And so it's, it is cost effective. It does require some pretty cute calculations because you've got to know exactly where everything is going to be at exactly the right time and the right place. But uh, that's what space scientists do for a living. Thank you, Jerry. Now we finish with a question from Donald, who wants to
2: know, how many times does a cell have to divide to produce a baby? Well, actually, this comes down to pretty simple maths. Because if we think about it, a single egg divides in in two, and one cell becomes two. And then those cells each divide in half again. So two, split to make four and those four cells then split themselves in half and they become eight and then those eight cells split in half and you get 16 and then 32 and this grows exponentially and that means we can write an equation to represent that growth where you say two to the power of n which is the number of divisions equals x cells. So if we want to know What n is, how many divisions, we need to know how many cells. Well, a baby contains probably a couple of trillion cells. So, therefore, 2 to the power of n divisions must equal about 2 trillion. So, how do we find out what n is? Well, you can do this using logarithms. So, if we take the the natural logarithm of both sides of the equation, you actually then get n line 2 equals line, the natural log of 2 trillion. If we then divide both sides by the natural logarithm of 2, line 2, you get line of 2 times 10 to the 12 over line of 2, and that's actually 28.324 divided by 0.693. That's about 41. So what that tells you is that a single cell only has to divide about 41 times to end up with 2 trillion cells that would make up a baby. It's not as many as you might think, is it? Now that's it for this week. Unfortunately we have run out of time. I have to say a very big thank you to our panel this week who are Jerry Gilmore, Howard Griffiths, Kate Stores, and Dan Jones and also to Connie Orback for production and you for sending us such fantastic questions. Do please keep them coming because we're coming back with another Q&A in a month's time. You can send them in to chris at com. Thinking ahead though, next week... Water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. We'll be exploring new ways for an increasingly thirsty world to get the salt out of seawater and soils to keep plants and people healthy. Join us for that next week. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC and also Rolls-Royce. Until next time, goodbye.
0: Thinking about your next career move in research and development?